Follow along as I read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 this morning. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. About 15 years ago, I had the privilege of uh, being able to go to Israel and spend about 10 days there. And one of the places we got to go was to Bethlehem there in the West Bank and to uh, what is called the Church of the Nativity. It's actually kind of three churches that are now stuck together that have been built up over time. But the, uh, the oldest church there, which is kind of the church that is built over the top of what has historically been called the, the birthplace of Jesus, is the oldest standing Christian church in the world. It was originally built uh, in the, the fourth century, in the 300s AD, in this spot in, in uh, Bethlehem. And then um, there was a fire in, I believe it was the sixth century, and a rebuilding effort was made. But this church has stood there since about the fourth century. It's a, originally a Turkish church. Now, the reason that this is the oldest standing Christian church in the world is because during the Crusades, it was not destroyed. And the reason it was not destroyed is because up on one of the ceilings or on the wall near the ceiling on one side of the building is a mural with these three wise men, these three magi from the east. And so as the, uh, as the, the wars during the Crusades went on, the Christians didn't want to tear the ch Christian church down and the, the Persians or the Muslims at that time did not want to destroy the building in honor of the three wise men. And so there the building still stands to this day. These magi, or wise men as it's translated here, we have recently encountered, not these specific wise men, but the magi in general as we worked our way through the book of Daniel. The sorcerers and Chaldeans and magicians that Nebuchadnezzar and others sought to have interpret their dreams are the, the predecessor to these wise men here. In fact, the term magi is where we get our word magic or magician from. Simon Magus in 
Uh, Acts chapter 8 is probably one of their order, but starting in the Babylonian Empire and then uh, continuing throughout the time of Jesus' birth, this magi, which had become like an aristocracy, this this, uh, high class in society, had not only grown there in what would have been called Babylon in uh, in Daniel's day, but then they had kind of worked their way out, and and they, they even had places in the Roman Empire. In the Persian Empire, they were incredibly powerful, um, acting almost like a senate to, uh, to the king. More than just advisors, they were lawmakers, they had to approve wars and various things. They were a powerful class in the East. They were probably half astronomer, half astrologer, watching the stars, but at the same time, they were kind of checking their daily horoscope. And they had, as I said, spread throughout the world so that even by the time we get to Acts 8, we still see Simon Magus or Simon the Magician there in Jerusalem. Nothing in the text tells us how many of them came. Nothing tells us exactly where they came from. Nothing suggests that they were kings. Nothing suggests that they rode camels. The only place we can infer that there may have been three of them is that they offered three gifts. But that does not necessarily mean that there were not more of them than three that traveled. And so what this text says here to us today is is all that we know about them. They have traditionally been given names, they have been traditionally called kings, they have been traditionally riding camels, and there were three of them. But really, other than the fact that there were magi, that they showed up looking for for Jesus and worshipped him and presented gifts to him, is all that we know. What is the purpose, though, for which Matthew shares this account with us? And I would say before we dive into this text that his, his purpose is threefold, and he continues three major themes that we've begun to see in the book of Matthew and that will continue to get developed all the way through. Number one is that Jesus, or Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus is the king, which is why we're calling this series Upside Down, because Jesus is the king of an upside-down kingdom. Or maybe rather, how we should view that is that the kingdoms of the earth and the way that they are established and ruled is upside down, and that Jesus here is the right-side-up king in a right-side-up kingdom. But from our perspective, everything we see about this king is backwards. He doesn't rule by killing people. He doesn't establish his kingdom on the death of others. He dies for his subjects. He loves them. He shepherds them. He provides for them. Everything about this king and this kingdom is upside down. And so Matthew wants us first to understand that Jesus is the king. Secondly, he wants us to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. That Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We have seen up to this point and will continue to see on repeat Matthew drawing us back to texts in the Old Testament to show us how all of the scriptures pointed to Christ. And then thirdly, and maybe most importantly in this text for us today, because this gets closer to the point of this particular account, is that Matthew wants us to understand how people receive Jesus. 
In fact, what he wants us specifically to see is that continually Jesus is rejected by his people, rejected by the Jews, rejected by those who claim to be his and to know him, and accepted by those Gentiles who would not be considered his. And so we see, beginning in this text today, that this working out of this theme of Jewish rejection of their Messiah, but Gentile reception of the Messiah. Let's work our way through this text, and I'll point out some things along the way, and then I want us to see three points. So let's return to the text. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, we don't know how long after he was born, but sometime after his birth, uh, the uh, Magi come to Bethlehem in Judea. Apparently, Mary and Joseph had taken up residence there because as Herod ascertains the timing of, of the birth of the Messiah that the, or the appearance of the star that the Magi were looking for uh, would indicate, and, and he, he slaughters, as we'll see next, uh, well, in a few weeks, um, these, these babies two years old and under, Jesus is not just immediately born. The stage is no longer the, the stable where he was born. And in fact, later when they find him, they find Mary and Joseph and Jesus in a house. And so Mary and Joseph had taken up residence in Bethlehem. We're specifically told multiple times throughout this text that it's Bethlehem of Judea. And, and while there is a Bethlehem of Galilee, I don't think Matthew's point here is merely to distinguish Bethlehem of Judea from Bethlehem of Galilee. Bethlehem in Judea was the birthplace and the home of David, the first king, the king in whose line the Messiah was to come from, and, and it was almost the, the king factory. This is the place where kings were born. This is the place where kings were prepared to rule. And so I think Matthew is drawing us both from Micah 5, as we'll see here shortly, and here in verse 1 of chapter 2, to the fact that Jesus was born where kings are born. And he was born in the days of Herod the king. Now, Herod is in many ways a title, and so even though this Herod dies when Jesus is young, if you continue to read the Gospels, you'll see that there are other Herods, and they're not the same Herod. It is, it is a title. This particular Herod was a man named Herod the Great. He was a prolific Builder. He built Masada and Caesarea Philippi and the Herodian and many other buildings there. He was an incredible builder. And he was, by all accounts, organizationally a good leader. And maybe this is partly why Rome appointed him to, to be king over Israel at that time. They, I think they thought that his genealogy might lend towards Jewish acceptance of him. But what we find is that that was completely the opposite of what, what happened. He is, he is Idumean by, by heritage or by birth. That is an Edomite. That, that would be modern-day uh, Jordan. And he was not received well by the people. Not only was he probably not received well by the people because of his birthright, he was not received well because he was a ruthless and violent man. He killed his wife and three of his sons, among many others. Any threat to the throne, as we see later, as he kills babies without any problem, any threat to the throne was removed. In fact, he was so hated by the people 
that in his old age and before he died, he put an order in place that a bunch of prisoners in Israel be killed as soon as he died. The reason for this was that if he killed a bunch of prisoners at his death, the nation would then mourn, and it would appear as though they were mourning him. He was not well received. And so in those days, the days of Herod the Great, Herod the King, uh, behold, wise men, magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, verse 2, and, and the word here saying, it, 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 it points us to the fact that they were saying this repeatedly. It's like they went to Jerusalem and they were wandering around asking over and over, where is he who has been born king of the Jews. And as they went around asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews, Herod catches wind of this. And he's not very happy about it. Uh, Notice that the specific question is, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Herod the king was not born king. He was appointed king. And the idea that somebody would be born king would have been a threat to him. This is not good news to Herod. For, they say, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. There is much speculation on what this star is. About this time, Halley's Comet made an appearance. There were other planets that moved incredibly through uh, constellations and around stars at this point in time that were pretty amazing. But none of it seems to line up time-wise with the birth of Jesus. So there really are two options. Either God sovereignly allowed some kind of natural occurrence in the stars to lead these wise men to Jerusalem, which I don't think is the case, and I'll explain why later in the text, or there was some kind of supernatural phenomena that they followed and arrived there. Either way, they knew that it wasn't just a star, but that it was his star. This harkens us again all the way back to the book of Daniel, where in Babylon, Daniel not only lived and ministered and wrote, but others did as well. And so we find that Jeremiah and Daniel and other prophets were written, if not from, to the area where these wise men were from. They had the scriptures. They had the account of who Jesus was. And somehow or another, from their scriptures, uh, from these scriptures, and supernaturally by God, this star appears and leads them. And they come to worship him. Now, this word worship can also simply mean pay homage to. And there are some who say, well, these kings didn't know who Jesus was. They just knew he was a king and that they came to pay homage to him. But as this account of the visit of the wise men to Jesus unfolds, I think we're going to see that that is not a satisfactory answer. That these magi saw his star, they knew his scriptures, and they came to find this particular king to worship him. It amazes me that there are efforts in the church today to cut off, to stop using, to unhitch ourselves, if, we, if you will, from the Old Testament. 
Because whether it's these wise men who the Old Testament led to show up here to Jesus, or it's Matthew quoting from Micah 5.2 and 2 Samuel 5.2, whether it's Jesus in Luke 27 explaining from all uh, the, the scriptures, or Luke 24, I mean, verse 27, explaining from all the scriptures how they point to him, to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts who's reading Isaiah, we see that from Genesis to Revelation, the subject of every word of every page of your Bible is Jesus Christ. They all lead there. Whether it's about Adam or Abel, or Abraham, or David, or Noah, or any of the prophets. It's all pointing us to Jesus. These wise men, these magi, had the scriptures, and they knew who this would be. And so they came saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Of course, he was troubled. This is a threat to his throne and all Jerusalem with him. I don't think Jerusalem was troubled because the wise men showed up asking where the born king was. They wanted a different king. They were troubled because Herod was troubled. And they knew that Herod being troubled meant trouble for them. And so they were worried because of his reaction. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people. This is interesting. This shows how far off Herod was from, from leading these people rightly. There was, as we're told uh, in the Old Testament, to be only one high priest at any given time. But Herod put the office up for sale, and so he would appoint a high priest and remove a high priest. He would allow the position to be bought, and when a high priest was put in place and then removed by him, they didn't lose their title, even though they weren't acting as high priests. And so, instead of according to God's plan, there being only one high priest at any given time, there was a bunch of high priests. Add to that the captain of the temple who led what was effectively an army to, to create this temple police force and others, you end up with the chief priests. At this point in time, most of the chief priests are Sadducees. This aristocracy, this ruling class that denied angels, that denied afterlife, they denied basically everything that was spiritual. And they're the ones who are leading God's people. And so you have this group of chief priests and in great opposition to the chief priests are the scribes. The scribes are not Sadducees denying the afterlife and angels and all things spiritual. They're Pharisees. They're hyper-legalistic lawyers who believe in all of these things, but believe that the kingdom of God will be achieved by their own goodness. And Herod was so desperate to find out who this child was and where he was to be born that he assembled all of them. And he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. It's interesting to me that he does not ask them, where is the king, but where is the Christ? He knew that this child that they came to worship was the Messiah, the one who would save them, the one who would set them free. This should only add to our understanding of his anger and terror and trouble at this news. 
They told him, verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler. That's Micah 5.2. And then Matthew adds for us this line from 2 Samuel 5.2, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, he didn't want anybody to know, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I, may, I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And this is why I believe the star was supernatural. Because the language here would indicate to us that the star had disappeared, and now it's about to reappear, and not only is it going to reappear, it's able to pinpoint a specific house. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw uh, the child, I'm sorry, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped. This is why I think this is genuine worship and not merely paying homage. Imagine that you had heard of a prophecy of a king hundreds of years before he is born. And miraculously, a star appears and guides you on a long journey to Jerusalem, where you come into contact with the appointed king. And he says, this is where this king is to be born. Go find him. Let me know where he is so that I may worship him. And then the star reappears and you follow the star and it comes to rest over a house in Bethlehem of a poor carpenter who is not looked upon well in society because he married a woman who had a baby outside of marriage. They're the town scandal. This is not a big town. I know you all talk about Walla Walla being a small town. This makes Walla Walla look like a metropolis. History records nowhere the death of these children in Matthew 2. And the speculation amongst historians, scholars, both biblical and secular alike, is that uh, Bethlehem at that point in time was so small and there would have been so few babies that not enough of them would have died to even make it newsworthy. This is a small town. And they're likely the town's scandal. When they present Jesus in the temple, they offer two birds rather than a lamb because they were too poor to afford a lamb. And you're bringing with you to offer to this king gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, incredibly valuable treasures. When you show up to that house in that poor uh, town where that poor couple is, that is the town scandal, and this is the king that you have traveled hundreds of miles over a great amount of time following a supernatural star to come see, are you going to be shaken? This, this is the king? This is the king I've come to pay homage to? What a waste of my time. There are so many other kings in the world I could have gone and sought out. But they're entirely unfazed. When they find this child, 
they fall down and worship. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And as I read one commentary, it speculated about what these gifts were. And it, it admitted that. Uh, we don't know that this is necessarily what Matthew intended by recording these gifts. But here's something interesting. And I thought to myself, oh, that's got to be a stretch. And then I read another commentary. And another commentary. And another commentary. And they all said the same thing. And I thought, well, when this many people are talking about this, maybe there's something to it. Gold would have been a gift fit for a king. By far, maybe one of the, considered one of the most valuable things in that day. Certainly used for money, especially very, very valuable money. It is still considered today to be one of the primary precious metals that there is. We all understand the value of gold. Frankincense, however, is a little more rare to us. But frankincense would have been a spice or was a spice that had a specific storehouse in the temple. It was used by the perfumers in Israel to make special oils for anointing the high priests. And it was also used in sacrifices, uh, both uh, blood sacrifices and burnt offerings in the temple. And myrrh, less valuable than frankincense, was still nonetheless valuable. It was used often as a burial spice uh, to cover up the scent of death and was, in fact, one of the spices used to, uh, to prepare Jesus for his burial. It was what was mixed with the wine and offered to him to drink as an anesthetic that he refused before his crucifixion. What does all this point us to? The gold points us to, or possibly points us to, Jesus' kingly role. It is a gift fit for kings. Frankincense being used in the temple and in offerings might point us to his deity. If gold points to royalty, frankincense may point to deity, and myrrh being a burial spice might point us to his humanity. The royalty of Christ, the deity of Christ, and his death and resurrection for our sins are not hidden in Daniel and Jeremiah and in other places. I think these magi knew that they were not coming to pay homage to an earthly king, but they were coming to worship the king of kings. And this, these gifts that they offer may even point us to the fact that they understand his royalty, that he rules all things, his deity, that he is the eternal God, and his humanity, that he took on flesh to become one of us, to live the sinless life that you and I have not and could not live, to die in our place, to be resurrected again, offering us eternal life if we will merely trust him. Maybe the next verse points us to the fact that that is what's going on because they were warned not with stars, but in a dream. The same way Joseph was told about who Jesus would be. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their country another way. This is an amazing passage. But the point here 
is that there are, uh, it's, again, it's speculation. We don't know what happened with the gifts after this. But after this, Herod seeks to, uh, to have Jesus killed. My guess, and the guess of many others, is that these gifts were used to fund their flight to Egypt, which God warned them of in a dream. But what I want us to see today is three responses to Jesus. And I think Matthew wants us to understand, and God, by extension of that, wants us to understand these three responses to Jesus. And I'm going to go a little bit out of order. I want to start with point two, and that is outright anger. Outright anger. You'll get point one up there as well, which is cold indifference, but we'll get, we'll get there in a moment. This is, this is Herod's response to Jesus. He is threatened, so he gets angry. Angry enough to kill babies in verse 16 to try and protect his kingdom. The reality is that people have always responded to Jesus with anger because Jesus has always threatened their kingdoms. Whether it's the kingdom you live in, maybe it's a, you're a king and you rule over a kingdom, you come face to face with Jesus and he's the king of kings. Or, or maybe it's just your own personal kingdom that you're trying to build. Maybe you're trying to build your own kingdom on your own values, your own pursuits, your own desires, your own identity, and, and Jesus topples all kingdoms because he is the king of kings. He's not just ruling over nations, he's ruling over you and over me. And I think many Christians, certainly myself included in this, are maybe most afraid of people in this category. Oh, what happens when I tell somebody about Jesus and they get angry with me? What happens when the nation or the kingdom or the the world or the community that I live in gets angry with Jesus? Well, I think one of the things we see here is that this is not a new problem. And God knows how to save his people from it. He saves Jesus from Herod. He saves the wise men from Herod. And he can save you and I from the culture that we live in. So many times we're afraid of people in this category. And I don't think we should be. Saul, in Acts chapter 7 and 8, is overseeing the death of not just... uh, Um, Stephen there, but Paul was given, or who would become Paul, Saul, was given a license to wrangle up and execute as much church as he wanted to. And God was able to save him. The Pharisee Saul, overseeing the death of Stephen, became the apostle Paul. And when he got saved the church was a little alarmed. Like Jerusalem being alarmed at Herod, the church was alarmed that Saul might actually be saved. I had a friend or an acquaintance in college. He was a Kirby salesman, vacuum cleaners. And and he came over to, to, uh, to show us a vacuum one time. And I was like, yeah, you can come over, but I'm not buying a vacuum. He said, okay. He came over, and like an idiot, I bought a vacuum. I was talking to him later. He says, you know, everybody who tells me they're not going to buy a vacuum buys a vacuum. Sometimes it's the people who are most angry who are most ready and willing to come. 
We have no need to be afraid of those whose initial response to Jesus is outright anger. Our responsibility is to just keep loving them, to keep sharing the gospel with them, and let God sort the rest out. The next category, number one, cold indifference, I think this is what you and I should be most afraid of. I think you and I should be most afraid of cold indifference. This is the chief priests and the Pharisees. Herod, in his anger, sought out Jesus. The Magi, in their joyful worship, that's point three, seek out Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees, who are supposed to be, who say, who are in fact looking for the Messiah, they're the only ones here who don't seek him out. They were so concerned with themselves, their lives, and their pursuits that even when Magi from the east, looking for the king, followed a star, and they had to help search the scriptures to help the king figure out where the baby was to be born, they didn't stop to think, maybe I should go see if this is where the baby is. There was just cold indifference. This should be the group that you are most afraid to be a part of because they knew the truth, they just didn't care. I think there's a lot of people who think they're Christians but who will find themselves in this category. Who will know the truth but with great indifference find themselves in hell. It might look like this. I I attend church one to two times a month and I pray and read the Bible occasionally. But I'm not really committed to that kingdom. Mostly I give myself to chasing after my kids' sports or entertaining myself or or, or work. Because, Because I know the truth... But letting Jesus rule over me like that, well, I'm just a little indifferent to that. That's not really that important to me. And the book of Hebrews is one gigantic warning against being in this group. The call to Hebrews is to not neglect your salvation, to not forsake the assembling of the believers, to not know the truth and arrive in hell because of your mere cold indifference. Are you ambivalent towards being here on Sundays, towards meeting with Jesus in your Bible and in prayer regularly? This text would warn you of the dangers of that. Because Jesus is not welcoming of the indifferent. He's welcoming of worshipers. And that's what we see in this third category. We see these magi who maybe seem the farthest away from arriving at the truth. They open up the paper and look at their horoscope every day. They're, they're coming from that, that land over there where, where the Muslims are now. They're just a bunch of pagans who, who are searching out for God in all the wrong places. Yet supernaturally, God is drawing them to himself. When Paul stands before the Areopagus in Athens, 
and says, you see this statue to an unknown God? I'm here to proclaim to you who this God is, and he is the God, Acts 17, verses 26 and 27, who made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Why did God do that? Why did God set the allotted time periods of the people in Walla Walla and Athens and anywhere else in the world? Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. The reality is, people are searching for God. The problem is, they're too busy trying to be God in the world to see God in the world. Because verse 27 doesn't end there. It says, yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. very common in seeker-sensitive churches to say, we'll do anything short of sin to seek those who are far from God. Do you really believe that God is that far off? There is no one who is far from God. There is no one who is beyond the gospel. It's just that that's God's job to sort out. Paul went to Athens and preached the gospel in the Areopagus. Jesus came to earth to be the gospel to save us. The Magi came to Bethlehem to seek him out. There is a world full of people outside of these doors who are too busy playing God to see God, but he's not far off because he's everywhere and all-powerful, and it's your job and mine to go tell him who he is. Whether they respond with anger or faith is not up to us. What is up to us is to say, I'm not going to live my life with cold indifference that doesn't care, that doesn't care about the gathering of the church, that doesn't care about the worship of Christ, and that doesn't care about the salvation of the lost. Don't be indifferent. Either be angry outright, or be a joyful worshiper, but don't be so self-deceived as to think you can be ambivalent about who Jesus is and still be one of his. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, I would beg you to trust him, to join this chorus of joyful worshipers. If you do, I would encourage you to go and tell people about him. But maybe the most amazing thing in this passage is hidden in chapter 6, where Matthew combines Micah 5.2 and 2 Samuel 5.2. Why, why is this amazing? Because I think what Matthew wants to do here for us is combine the idea of ruler and shepherd. Because Micah 5.2 loosely says, and you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler. And then Matthew adds, 2 Samuel 5, 2, who will shepherd my people Israel? I think one of the things, one of the dangers is that we reduce Jesus to the idea of a shepherd who leads and feeds, but not a king who rules. 
But biblically, these ideas aren't separated. The verb in in Greek, to shepherd, is often translated to rule. Because there's not a disconnection in the thinking in that day of a ruler and a shepherd. I can give you some examples. Revelation 2.7. The word in Greek, by the way, for to rule is poimino. And he will rule them. Poimano, shepherd. The, the, the verb form or the noun form of that is what we translate pastor. A pastor is a shepherd. And when Jesus shepherds, he rules. I'm not making the same connection. I'm just wanting us to understand that, that when Revelation 2 says, and he will rule, it's the same word as shepherd. He will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have authority from my father. Revelation 12, 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule, poimino, uh, shepherd all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Revelation 19, 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule, shepherd, poimino, them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Jesus is not just the shepherd of the church. He is its ruler. He doesn't just want to lead and feed you. He wants to rule over you. But he does so with goodness. This is where his kingdom becomes upside down. He does this with self-sacrifice. He does this so that he can bless us with every blessing in the spiritual places. Some time ago, British Admiral Lord Nelson, uh, who was a a brilliant uh, naval admiral, was known for treating his enemies with kindness and respect. He would defeat you, and then he would be kind towards you. And this... this, uh, this information about who he was and his character began to spread. After one particular naval battle and and conquering another ship, another naval group, the captain of that naval group came walking across the deck of Lord Admiral's boat, ship. And upon walking up to Lord Nelson, he reached his hand out in peace. Without raising his hand and without moving, Lord Nelson replied, Your sword first, sir, then your hand. The statement, you must surrender first before becoming my friend. You must surrender your kingdom before receiving my kindness. And so it is with Jesus. We must surrender to him as king if we are to know him as shepherd. And as Matthew combines these two verses here, it's as if he is saying, look, here is the king of kings. Some respond in anger, some respond in indifference, and some will respond in worship. But in order to come to this king, your sword first, sir, and then your hand. Whose kingdom are you in? Who's who's the king of your life? He will be your ruler if you want him to be your friend. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you 
have given us this text. We thank you that what we see in the world around us today is not unusual. That from the time of your birth, there are, are those who have been angry at your arrival. There have been some who have been indifferent. And there are some who have joyfully worshipped. Lord, we want to be found among those worshipers. Lord, let us not be found today ambivalent to your kingdom. Let us not be found complacent towards your rule. But Lord, would you let us willingly lay down our kingdoms over and over and over again to your good rule. And in in coming into your kingdom, uh, may we find you to be a ruler who shepherds your people, who leads and feeds and guides, who cares for and provides. May we see the goodness of this upside down kingdom as you show us what kingdoms really should look like. But may we all, whether we have never responded to you in faith or been walking with you for years or even decades, respond and surrender today. You are worthy of our surrender and our allegiance because you are royalty. You deserve gifts of gold. You, you rule over all things, but you, you are also a, a, a God eternally who created us and who became one of us, took on flesh to die in our place, to stand condemned for us, that we might through faith die with you and be resurrected with you and receive eternal life and every good gift and, and blessing that you have for us in the heavenly places. Lord, may we willingly surrender to you in that way over and over and over again for your glory and for our good. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we worship? Uh, As human beings, we tend to be a forgetful people. We tend to be a people who move on to the next thing, and it's easy to forget the goodness and the mercy of our God. So just for a moment, I want you to hold in your mind uh, something that you've repented for, something that you need.